We told you about Gaia Provides a couple months ago. Gaia Provides is back. They are a holistic small batch company crafting quality, lab-tested, hemp-based health and wellness products for pets. Kaplan, you've been giving it to Pancakes, Kaplan. Pancakes the dog over the last few months. How's she doing? Yeah, she loves these. Uh, I give her the beef liver flavor, the ones for small dogs. Um, And I give her a half a treat in the morning, a half a treat at night, and she loves them. They're delicious. She always barks for them. Uh, she's a, she's a, you know, my dog's a little dog. She's a mental patient. I like to say she's a lovable mental patient. So she's always, she's always, uh, stressed out, neurotic, just like me about something, but these, these make her chill. They calm her down. Uh, she does, obviously, you know, she's in a wheelchair. She has a lot of, uh, discomfort, uh, naturally. And these definitely help. Uh, I definitely see, a you know, she's has a high quality of life because of, uh, we take good care of her over here and these are a key part of our daily routine. So we love guy provides over here in the Kaplan household. And all these products, Cap, are THC-free. They do not have THC, which makes them safe for your pets. And I know Pancakes is always scared of all those fireworks you have in Long Island City, Queens, right there on the East River. They're shooting them off all the time. How's she doing with the fireworks once she yeah. takes this guy it provides? Yeah, when I used to be, I used to dread fireworks. I used to dread loud noises and thunderstorms. Um, but now I just enjoy them because when I give them to the pancakes, this makes it, like I said earlier, it makes her calm, makes her cool, makes her collected, makes her just sit there and enjoy life. So these, Look at that. Uh, I love, you they can have these enjoy drops. fireworks again. You can enjoy America again. You can enjoy <laughs> freedom again with Gaia provides everybody check out Gaia provides and use our promo code lost L O S T for a great deal. That is www. G-A-I-A provides P-R-O-V-I-D-E-S dot com. And and then just so you know, they also have on top of the treats, they have these little drops you could put in the food. So if you, you know, if you wanna you, you can get if they don't like the treat for whatever reason, these drops are also delicious. So guy provides. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. You're listening to the world's smartest podcast network. When I go to Sacramento, I will pump up Sacramento. Sacramento. Some say the news is fake. Others say it's real. These two don't have the time to check. Instead, Turner Sparks and Michael Ira Kaplan turn to comics stationed around the globe to be their eyewitness reporters so that you can know what's really going on. This is Lost in America. All right, everybody, welcome to Lost in America. My name's Turner Sparks. And I'm Mike Kaplan. You can find me on the road tomorrow night, September 30th in San Antonio, Texas at Dominion Country Club. Come on out, folks. The Alamo. And then the next day, I believe that's October. Yeah, I might hit the Alamo tomorrow. September, October 1st, I will be in Dallas, Texas, Royal Oaks Country Club. After that, next, I'm going to North Carolina, right around Charlotte. Then after that, I'm doing a week in Vegas, October 18th to 24th with Mr. Tom Rhodes. You know him from uh, you Mr. Were Rhodes the road. on NBC in 1994, I believe. Uh, and a great stand-up comedian, tours around the world. And then 
Other dates, November 10th, Sacramento Punchline, Sacramento, California, December 3rd and 4th, Alameda Comedy Club in Oakland, California, hitting the Bay Area. And uh, and uh, Andrew Wiggins will probably be at the show because he's not vaccinated, so he can't play for the Warriors. But they won't let him in the show either. It's that's like his, true. Yeah, yeah, he won't even be able to come into the show. Um, that's all my. Oh, and then a bunch of country clubs in between. I'm going to Oregon. I'm going all over the place. Go to turnersparks.com for tickets. For Kaplan, you can find him, Kaplan America, on all social media platforms. Is there anything I'm missing here, Cap? Are you coaching soccer? Should I promote your soccer games? No, at the moment, uh, my my son is actually holding out because we we don't agree, we're not agreeing to the to the pre, to this practice schedule. Oh yes, so he he's doing a Ben play, Simmons. As we talk about on live from the bunker on their Patreon show, we've discussed. Yes, he has not played a game yet. He has not attended a practice. He refuses to meet with the team. Refuses to meet with the other co- with the coaches. He's waiting to be traded. So in the meantime, I'm not working because you're not okay. So you so you <laughs> I'm not working. I, what? You're not working. You're the you're the you're the dad the 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 dad of the player. So you're like yeah, like those players' dads of super like Lonzo Ball. Lonzo Ball's dad. What's his <laughs> name? Lamar Ball, Ball of soccer. Something. Yes. Um, and I can't get a job today, by the Kaplan. way because oh sorry. Yeah. On the podcast today, uh, we are talking about Afghanistan. Uh, we have Pete Stegemeyer on the show, Kaplan. Now let's explain what happened here. Okay. Yes. Pete's gonna be up in a minute and usually we do these all live. The guests would be here with us right now. What happened is we recorded this on Monday with the idea of putting it out on Tuesday. Pete was with us and then not our fault. Riverside FM, this company that we pay Buku bucks to, to to do the great. Oh my God. It's the best sound. It's the best recording you've ever had in your life. They lost our file. They lost our recording file. They lost. Yeah. These are the new enemies of the pod. Let's be honest. New enemies of the pod. They are giving us a free month of Riverside oh, FM. They're the heroes of the pod. <laughs> I had to go back in. I spent the last 24 hours of my life find, saving the audio, fixing it up as much as possible. But we said, Cap, we're going to redo this intro. So it's just me and you. We've already recorded this pod a couple days ago. It's just me and you here right now. And then in a minute, we're going to go to the podcast we recorded a couple days ago. And you will hear that the audio is not perfect. But I'm going to tell you, I did all the work I could on it. And it's as best as it could possibly sound. Um, it's my years, five years now of audio editing skills put to work. And I think I fixed up as much as I could. There is a little bit of delay with you, with your, with Kaplan sound. So you're going to hear parts where Kaplan (laughs) makes a joke or Kaplan says something. And me and Pete just flat ignore him. (laughs) Like the kid you're, you're you're explaining it to me off air of what it sounds like. And it sounds like I'm like the, like when Teddy is trying like a grown up conversation, you guys are the grown ups. You're having a conversation. I'm trying to get your attention by making dumb jokes and throwing food. You're the child (laughs) making dumb jokes. And we're just looking, rolling our eyes at you and ignoring you. That's how it sounds like. That wasn't actually happening. What happened is we couldn't hear you, and you were on like a five-second delay, yeah. which is five seconds is a lot of time when these conversations are moving fast. I mean, mm. if you get it, you throw out a joke, and it hits us five seconds later, we don't even know what you're talking about anymore. It's like the, yeah, the speed of sound. A joke has to move. Which is the one that's faster, speed of light? But joke Light's has to move fast. faster than sound. <laughs> yes. Yeah. If it's like um, make- so yeah, so, so I, you're like, well, I think an even better uh, 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 correlation here. What do you call an analogy? Is you're like the bad kid in the back of the classroom who's yelling out jokes, and the teacher 
By the time it gets to the teacher, they've already moved on. They're trying to just teach math and get it right. Like I'm way. slow. Like I'm a class clown, but I'm a slow witted one. So like I'm not yeah. even making a joke at the right <laughs> moment. It's like I th- like the jerk store call. Like I'm thinking of the joke. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which by is the time. By the time you get it out, everyone's moved on. So I will also say that only lasts about five minutes, and then somehow the audio caught up, and then you're you're in sync I, with everybody else. I mean, the shame of it is, is that I did notice we talked. There's one example early on, and I noticed it happening in the moment. And I was like, there's no way that I wouldn't get even a reaction. They didn't hear me. So, so I was like trying, I knew there was some sort of delay. So I was, I was holding back a little this episode. He's also a great guest. I didn't want to get in the way, but there were some jokes I thought of to do with Myrna Sparks and all the money she raises just for the Taliban. I had a, I had some zingers coming, but I, I just didn't think I could get them in. Well, I so think I, we got to that part. I think we did get that in there. But the one thing that everyone should listen out for, just so we can all get a good chuckle, is when Kaplan tries to make a joke about drone strikes. <laughs> so that's the- and first of all, it's an off-color joke to make to a former um, military veteran. And then, but then second of all, it hurt. what hurts it even more is he and I don't put you over. To use yeah. wrestling terms, <laughs> we, we so no dumb. sell. We no sell your joke, and it's it's in reality it's because we didn't hear it. But it sounds right. like we just hate the joke, and we're like moving yeah. on with our lives. So anyway, no, there are yeah. Well, um, yeah. There's this is what happens. It's part of the business we've cho- you know. Once this is part of the price of the <laughs> pandemic. If we were in it's, studio, this yes. wouldn't have happened. This is so, how it works. Anyway, one day. So Pete's going to be up in a minute. Before him, Kaplan, if you like this podcast, patreon.com slash lost in America. We are up to $393 a month is what we're at right now. We have said if we hit $400 a month, we are throwing a, a party at the yeah. Friars Club in New York City. And all of our Patreon subscribers are invited. So for $7, or why don't you just throw in 10 bucks? You get to be the one who puts us over the top. Put us over the uh, yeah. Put us across the finish line. You're going to be the hero. Across the finish line, and you, everyone wants to be the fourth leg in the relay race because you're the one who crosses the line to win gold. No one, but you know our Sugar Brady's, Dennis Owens, Weatherman Keefe. These people are first, second, third legs. Drew Freilich, Abe Schmitz. Everyone loves Abe Schmidt. Gary Sparks. These are all the early legs. They don't get any of the glory. You're going to be the one to get the glory. Okay, we so will we will make top. a toast, a special toast to you at the party, the the, the, the annual party we're going to throw at the Friars Club. Yes. We will make a toast to the person who gets us over the $400. And you'll be so, there because you're going to fly <laughs> in and have this party with us. And for $10 a month, you're also going to get a Lost in America um, number one t-shirt. in Armenia t-shirt. Yeah. So that's not bad. And can I tell you, Drew Freilich wrote in something today. He thinks we should add. He said on our show, Live from the Bunker, which is our, you know, that's our... Um, it, we're podcasters, podcasters is what we are. You know, they say someone's a comedian's comedian. <laughs> yes. We're the real podcasters, podcasters, podcasters. If, if you're a true fan of us, you're listening to live from the bunker. And a lot of our bunker babes over there, they barely even hear this show. They're so obsessed with the bunker show. Yeah. And what we start every, every one of those shows out with is from my bunker to, no, no, we start out with, uh, uh, I'm in my bunker, Caps yeah. in his bunker. You were in your bunkers, America. And Drew Freilich said, he thinks for the highest money subscriber that month, they should get to send us audio or do it live with us once they get to do the intro. Oh, I like that idea. So Far right now, Sugar Brady is giving us $32.69 a month. Mm, heads and, in the toilet. And, and he <laughs> wants... Uh, uh, so Drew thinks Sugar Brady this month, one time he should be able to jump on and say, from my bunker to your bunker to Tourist Sparks to, to Kaplan's bunker. I think that's a great idea. And it should think? be the, the end of the month. So it's like you find out September 30th, like 11.59 if you want to go in. You True. jump in with $33 or whatever yes. is the highest number at the moment. 
you can and be you the can guy. do whatever you can read your Pee own ad court. live at the very beginning cap uh, so that's that so shout out to him shout out to uh bill Do- the, the the author william r dodson aka bill dodson We're who went up to twenty dollars a month this this week and he's getting an ad on today's pod everybody thanks for joining in now cap uh, let's skip this whole what do we know about Afghanistan? What do we not know? Because we've already done the episode. So it would be disingenuous. We, yeah, it would be disingenuous. Although I bet you we don't know. It. We've already forgotten. That was two days ago. So <laughs> I, I honestly, we were do, I'll just say one thing. We were doing the episode and Afghanistan was in the news so much a few weeks ago. And I was realizing how stupid I am because there was so much that I had read about Afghanistan or been watching. Like I, I felt like I knew so much that I'd already forgotten in the three weeks. Yes, since, since it was like so, I might, I'm my I've killed a lot of brain cells over the years. Well, what we're talking to him about, just to give it quick, is um we know we don't today we're not getting we don't want to get into pot like this idea of like oh should we have left when should we have left why didn't we leave at this time when did we leave too early too late what we're trying to figure out is why the Afghan military fell right. in two days why are they and so the prepared? reason why we have this guest comedian New York City comedian Pete Stegemeyer is because he's done two tours of of duty in Afghanistan working directly with the Afghan military so he's gonna tell us how they were trained if they were trained what they were trained like were they good. Were they bad? And we let him tell the tale. We're not here to say, we're not here to prove a point that we've already come up with. Yeah, we're, it's not like our Maybe they narrative. were great. Maybe they were great. Maybe it was our fault. Maybe they were terrible. Maybe it was their fault. We're going to find out. Cap, should we go to the interview? Play the music or go well, to the it's interview. no music, but <laughs> Just... we'll play the swoosh sound. <laughs> play the sound. <laughs> Let's get to uh, Pete Stegemeyer is a comedian in New York City, award-winning comedian, writer, physical and cybersecurity expert, which I want to get to. Physical security expert sounds very cool to me. <laughs> um, and he also has a book. He's also an author. He has a book coming out called Heist. It hits stores in October. So check that out. And he served. Oh, this is the most important part why we have him on. He served twice in the uh, he was served in the U.S. military. Was deployed twice. twice to Afghanistan and worked with the Afghan troops. Pete, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much. Thanks for doing it, man. Um, where did we? I don't even know. Where should we? Yeah, we don't know much. You worked with the. Well, can we? What? Yeah, let's start with what years did you work with the Afghan military? Yeah. Um, so I did. Um, my first deployment was from June of '08 to June of '09. Okay. And then pretty much all of 2011. Wow. Um, and so those were those were two different deployments to different areas of Afghanistan, but still working hand in hand with the, the Afghan army and the Afghan police both times. Okay. And what was your going over there? What was your job? What was your assignment? Uh, I was an infantryman. So on the uh, on the first deployment, especially I was our platoon's radio telephone operator. So Basically, any of the big meetings, uh, I would I would sit there like with my lieutenant and kind of you know meet all the village elders, kind of help uh, help with like you know the execution of patrols and uh, and things like that. And then the second deployment, I was a team leader, um, but I also did a lot of the administrative paperwork and like the higher the the higher level stuff. Okay, and when you say the um, elders of the, would you say the elders of the community? Yes. What does that mean? So, um, so basically each village, um, would have specific or have a variety of elders. So there would be, uh, religious leaders like mullahs. There would be, um, some people that were just, you know, had been in the community for, for years and were kind of the, uh, the people that would sign off on everything and 
provide provide that leadership. And so we would go to them to to a like kind of assess like their needs and be like, okay, like how can we like make life more stable for you? Like what what things can we provide? And also, you know, can you tell us where the Taliban are? Uh, <laughs> and what? So that let's get to that question right away. So. The Taliban was there the whole time. Oh yeah, they were they were everywhere. <laughs> was our was part of the U.S. mission to get rid of the Taliban, or did we kind of move past that? Um, or was that never part of the mission? I think originally it was part of the mission, and then we realized, kind of like we did in Vietnam, that like you just you can't um, like it's it's really really hard to defeat an insurgency. Uh, especially when they're not wearing, you know, uniforms and they can just, you know, just not shoot at you. And then you don't know that they're that they're Taliban at that time. So it's like it's very easy for them to uh, to integrate like back into the community, lay low for a bit and then come back when things are good. Um, but then like they would also come out at night, like if we would, after we would leave patrols. Uh, they would like ride in on uh, on like their uh, like dirt bikes or uh, scooters or whatever, and they would go to the same people that we talked to, and say, "What did you tell the Americans? Like, if you cooperate, we're gonna, you know, um, whatever the whatever that the threat happened to be." And so it kind of quickly turned from being a kinetic like conventional war where we would you know just have shootouts to almost for a bit uh, kind of like a killing with kindness campaign where we were trying to win the hearts and minds because that was like ideologically was the only way to defeat them. And so we would like build a school and say, this was built, you know, by uh, the ISAF uh, treaty forces or by NATO. And then they would go and like fix a road uh, and put a sign up that said like this stretch of highway has been adopted by the Taliban. And (laughs) (laughs) the Taliban, they're, I thought it was bad that Trump adopted a highway in, up in Westchester here in New York. Yeah, wow, so there were there were like weird things like that, but then there was still like the conventional fighting. And so at that point, it became like pretty clear that any sort of victory was going to take generations of like education and things like that. And then we would build schools and then they would burn the schools down or they would, you know, go and attack all the children going to school. So nobody was going to school and nobody was getting that education Jeez. and basically just. Yeah, it just like you can't really win a conventional war like that. Yeah, so it was just this never-ending loop of we do this, they do that, we do this. Was there, did they ever have um, like a centralized command, the Taliban? Yeah, they they definitely do. They have they have leaders. Um, uh, at the time, I believe Mullah Omar was uh, kind of their their uh, principal head, um, but but that like that the person at the top would typically not have a long life expectancy. Like, so they might, you know, serve as the leader for a couple of years, but then somebody else would, would take it up. But then they started branching out into political arms. And so they had like a full blown political party that had uh, like people who were highly educated and like lifelong politicians. Um, there was also, you know, insane amounts of corruption throughout uh, the Afghan government, but also every other government that's ever existed. Um, and so it became, uh, yeah, it just, it was like whack-a-mole combined with the shell game. Yeah. So, 
So when they didn't have the leaders didn't have a long life expectancy because our because they would be a target for our, we would go kill them or because their own Taliban would kill them. Typically, because we were, uh, you know, executing either like special forces raids, um, if we like, thought we could take them alive, there were a lot of drone strikes uh, and things like that as well. So you really don't want to be the head of the Taliban. I mean, now you might, but not back then. Well, it's a prestige yeah, position. You, you really didn't want like. It was kind of kind of like um, you know that like game that they would play in like Aztec Mexico where they like with the hoop and it was like the winning team would get sacrificed like you really want to be <laughs> the second best guy at that game right yeah second guy like, second like man at all times yeah, always the right hand man never enough to like make it look like you're given at the old college try but like just always banked a little left like that's that's kind of the guy you'd want to be wow and what. Um... Was were they ever coming and trying to kill? I guess they were. They would were they waging attacks on our military? Oh yeah, they would. Yeah. Um, they would do a lot of um, typically IEDs um, yeah. seem to be like the primary because like again like there's just you can't beat us in an open like open field of combat like that's just not going to happen. Um, but they were really good at IEDs um, like suicide bombers things like that. But then they were also um, they were really strategic with, uh, with things like rocket attacks and mortars because those you could like some, some of them you could set like a cake timer. And when the timer went off, it would like connect the wires and the rocket would shoot off or whatever. But they also knew our rules of engagement very well. So like, for example, if they were standing next to a building, they could lob mortars at us and we couldn't fire back because we couldn't risk damaging the building. So they would just kind of like camp out there and like lob mortars at us until they ran out and we really couldn't do much about that. So was that, you mean a building, like maybe like a hospital or a school or something like that? Uh, I mean, sometimes, but usually it was just like mud huts and, and things like that. We would. And we wouldn't, our rules of engagement is that we wouldn't take down a mud hut. Yeah, to, because typically like families live there. Um, I see. Yeah. Um, and so it was. We would only take them with a um, drone. And even then, like, they would have to, like, you'd have to have eyes on them as they, like, rode away on, like, their dirt bikes. And then if they were, like, sufficiently away from everything else, then you could execute a drone strike. But if they were, like, in a community, like, we really, because collateral damage at that point, too, would have been devastating to our Hearts and Minds campaign. Yeah. So, okay. So that's the enemy. And now you're training were you doing training or working along with uh how did you work with the afghan military uh so we had a we had a lot of um like partnership with the afghan military um typically there was the ana which is the afghan national army and then there was the anp which is the afghan national police and the police typically stuck to the cities um and would would kind of work because individual towns didn't have like their own like deputized sheriffs. So it was all national police, but uh, the Afghan army and then sometimes the Afghan police would go on patrols with us. Like we would, we would bring them on like, combat missions with us so that they could uh, kind of like work with our teams and, and have a good understanding because uh, the Afghan army was built on a uh, model, not surprisingly, because we, we built it um, to resemble the American army. And so, like, getting their infantrymen to, like, work with ours was, was a big part of that. Um, but then there was also, like, the support element. And that's, I think, where everything ultimately failed. Okay. So what happened? What, what was the support element? 
Um, so a, a good example, like um, something that like the recruiters say a lot, like when you join like the American Army, is that there's like two hundred and there's like two hundred and twelve jobs in in the military. Um, but infantry is only one of those jobs. The rest are support of some sort. So you have like cooks, you have truck drivers, um, you have the people that like fuel up helicopters, uh, you have the people that pilot the helicopters, load the weapons, all of that stuff. Like you have the band, right? Yeah, you, you have There's like a trumpet player and stuff. Exactly, and so, and we can't really do anything Someone. like without that support network. And so that was the way that the Afghan army was was built as well. But because that. Um, like the, if the infantry is the tip of the iceberg, like the rest of like the support pile is so much bigger and there just wasn't personnel to make a sufficiently large, uh, thing. So we subcontracted almost all of that. Um, oh, and this is, this is like, um, like if I'm throwing on the, like the tinfoil hat, like this is making billions for defense contractors because they were, they were the ones providing those services for sure. the So like they were the ones maintaining their helicopters. They were the ones, you know, doing like pretty much everything. And so when- So these are companies like, is Halliburton still around? Like companies yeah. like American defense contractor companies? Yeah, it's all in. American defense contractors, Halliburton, Raytheon, uh, like Kellogg, Brown and Root uh, was the one that Dick Cheney was uh, involved with as well yeah. as Halliburton. And all of these companies were providing the, I mean, honestly, the lifeblood of the Afghan army. And so when the drawdown happened that abruptly, all those contractors got pulled out. And then the Afghan army's capabilities oh. um, got diminished. Like, like, it wasn't that they just like stopped fighting. It was that they were stranded and they couldn't they couldn't do anything. They couldn't call for air support. They couldn't call for for anything. And it was basically, you know, if we fight, we die. If we don't, then maybe they'll absorb us into like the Taliban army. Like that's our best case scenario. So, and then also like the president like took a huge bribe and fled the country with like $160 million before the drawdown. So I'm pretty certain that he told them not to, not to fight as well and just kind of took off. Whoa, wait a second. Uh, Wow. So we forgot the mission out of the intro, but when the Afghani president left, I knew. Yeah, I should have said that too. You're right. That was the, when he left, that was was obviously if your number one leader is not leaves the country, then you're going to be like, screw this. But I haven't heard anything about this. That makes so much sense. This idea of the, the, the iceberg and the tip of the iceberg. So you're saying that our military is basically built ground up. It's built from all these people who support the infantry and all those. Why did we not build their military that way? You said there wasn't enough people. There weren't I, enough Afghans. I, I think it's I think it's a couple of things. And if I'm going to be like really skeptical, I think a lot of it is because it made a lot of people a lot of money to not have that go yes. locally. Um, the idea, I mean, I think that's why we never declared war against Afghanistan. We declared war against fear, terror as like mm. an abject, like persistent enemy. So you can justify having a, a forever war. Um, and so I think that was a big part of it. And then eventually people were like, we have to go. And there was just no clean way, no clean way to do that. But we also, we didn't give the Afghan, Afghan people a chance because when, um, like when Trump negotiated the the drawdown calendar with uh, mm-hmm. like with the Taliban, 
Yeah. Uh, they had those meetings with Taliban leadership. They didn't have those meetings with Afghan government leadership. So the Afghan government wasn't yeah. in on the loop. Like they were never part of it. Like we never, uh, I mean, like basically never considered them a viable government um, if we're not negotiating our uh, our release with, with them instead of the Taliban. Wow. Okay. And what was the Afghan government like in terms of what did the people see? Because I guess the military supports the government, right? And what did, how did the people view the Afghan government? You'd mentioned corruption. Were there free elections? Did people feel like these are actually our leaders or how did that work? So, so that's, that's another like trillion dollar question. Um, yeah. Because like we would we would do things in support of free elections, like we would pull security on like district centers for them to hold like local government uh, governatorial um, like races and, and things like that. But I mean, it's it's really hard to tell because a lot of times the the candidates like knew they were risking their lives, um, so it's hard to get candidates to to want to run for things a lot of times uh, or to, you know, formally announce and say, these are the things I'm going, going to do um, because that would draw ire from the Taliban. Um, I think a lot of people realized that the government was, was pretty corrupt, but at the same time, like uh, the Afghan people didn't, didn't really have a dependence on government. Like, like we did, or like, or at least, a form of government like like ours, um, and so when we were trying to say, "Oh, you have to like vote for these guys," and then they'll like be in charge, we're like we don't want that. We want like local, like tribal leadership. Uh, right? They didn't used to have. They never had right before. Not you know before we went in, they didn't have a national, a strong national. Yeah, and like, what they had, like the, probably the closest that they had. I mean, it's been the British were there a hundred years ago. Uh, the I, I mean, I really think like since the Soviets came, like everything has been like you just have to leave them alone um, because like after the British left, like uh, Kabul in the 70s, if you ever see like photos of it, it was it was a pretty modern Western style city. Like there were women in yeah. like short skirts, um, you know, working like professionally and things like that. And then things kind of went uh, went to hell when the Soviets invaded. Um, they pushed back on that a little bit, but that allowed um, partly because, you know, we funded the Taliban and the Mujahideen uh, yeah. to kind of take over. Um, and things haven't been things haven't been like that for, you know, 50 years now. I mean, in the 80s, the Taliban was going to like suburban potlucks in America and raising money. <laughs> My parents donated money in the, the 80s to the Taliban and all their friends did. It wasn't actually like, called the Taliban, in fairness to them. Yeah, the Rambo 2 is dedicated to the Taliban. I mean, it's insane. Ever And my parents were like, no, it was like Stan Atkinson was the local news. Like, you know, how in the 80s, we all had a local news reporter who was like the Walter Conkright, but for your, your city. He was the local guy in Sacramento, California, and he was going hand in hand with the Taliban. To, they had a big funk. They had a hundred dollar a plate dinner at the Radisson downtown. And all the, if, if you were anybody who was anybody in Sacramento, California, you donated to the Taliban in the 80s. And they were doing this in every city in America, Cleveland, Detroit, you know, Philadelphia, wherever. And then that was all to fight the, the Russians, basically. So, yeah. Well, it, was, it wasn't, it, they weren't the Taliban, in fairness. They were called. What were they called? Yeah. Um, did they actually, what was yeah, the, they were the, the Mujahideen, Mujahideen, but that oh, was like, just a, that basically became 
the the structure of the yeah, it, the grass yeah. Grass. yeah. Well, so um, <laughs> good job to all of them. So, uh, so did, when the when the Russians went in, did they try to set up? What did they? What did did we learn anything from them? I mean, I I feel like the lesson we should have learned was you can't take over Afghanistan like that. <laughs> Real basic one. And, right. and we, we kind of knew that like going in, we're like, well, like nobody has ever, uh, like nobody has ever like conquered Afghanistan. Like, uh, the closest, closest person, um, probably Alexander the great. Um, and that's like, yeah, Kandahar was named after him and became like the, the central, uh, seat of his, uh, like Western or Eastern push. Um, but, but even he didn't, didn't get all of it. Like it was, and also that was, you know, thousands of years ago. So things have changed a bit. Um, but they're just, you can't, you can't force them to, um, you can't force them to adopt a, a form of governance that they don't want for themselves. Yeah. If they have these like local tribal leaders, then that's what they kind of want, right? Maybe they don't need this style. I don't know. Yeah. yeah it's, it's just like, I mean, we just have to leave, leave well enough alone and like i think there there still needs to be like you know monitoring of the taliban and and things like that but at the same time like there's like they're they're extremely resilient people uh they've fought back every invader that has ever come to afghanistan and we kind of have to trust them to be able to do that to themselves um as much as possible i it's it's hard though because because like it seemed, it seemed important to like protect like the women and children. Because you would see all this like horrible stuff going on, and that sure. like as you were like building the schools and stuff like that. Like I was in Afghanistan when uh, Malala got shot in Pakistan, and we're like, this is like the kind of stuff that we have to like you know like stop. And so it becomes, yeah, it become. But after a while, it, it kind of felt like it was more about our ability to like us being able to say, Oh, we could do whatever than it was about like actually helping the people. And I think it, it almost became kind of like narcissistic, like, well, the Americans can do this. Like, well, we'll be great with that. And we just, we weren't equipped and they, like they didn't want what we were offering. How were the women and children? Uh, how were they treated? Like, what did you see while you were there? I mean, so there were a lot of um, like most Pretty much every woman was was wearing the burkas um, while we were there, um, and we didn't interact with them very often because uh, there were like pretty strict cultural rules with uh, like only women should talk to women uh, and things like that. We didn't have uh, a lot of times we didn't have a woman like in our infantry platoon or whatever, so uh, we would try to sit with like the interpreter sometimes, but they were sometimes not open to that. Um, the children were. The children were cool. Um, and the women that we got to talk to a little bit are obviously, I mean, it, it felt very human because they're like, like, we know this sucks. Like we know that like our kid, like kids don't have like the brightest future and things like that. And like, they were aware of that, but they also were kind of aware, like, I don't know, like how to do this. So we would try to do things, um, like just like even like small things, like we would like hand out like mittens and stuff like that, like during the winter. And they seemed like very appreciative. Like, I mean, cause I mean, I guess like 
at the end of the day, like everybody's human and like, there's like certain shared human experiences. It's like, okay, these people really want to take care of our kids versus, uh, you know, whatever. And I think, I think that was a big, a big part of it. Um, but yeah, we didn't interact like as much as, uh, as we did with the men just because of the cultural uh, so even because I guess what we've read on the news is like, oh, Afghanistan a month ago or two months ago was this open and free society. And then the Taliban came in and now women have no rights and women and children don't have rights or, or whatever it might be. So how how accurate is that? Was the shift? Do you think the shift would have been that gigantic or does it? Um, or and also because the Taliban was always around. So they, they had it had to be incremental. Um, they would go to school, but you still. So that I feel like a lot of that stuff happened before I got there because when we arrived in 2008, like uh, girls were not allowed to go to school already, um, and everybody was supposed to wear the burkas. Like past- girls were not allowed to go to school in 2008. Correct. While we were, while the U.S. military was there. Yeah, and then we would like. Is it because of the region? Well, like, that was basically areas, what the Taliban had had laid down as law. And so we would build schools and try to encourage, you know, uh, and like pull security. So it's like, hey, boys and girls can go to this school. But then there were like religious things with it. Um, and it became, but the Taliban was always watching. So if, um, if like women did go or girls did go to school, then there would be notes like, you know, hammered in the public square that said, like, we saw your girls go to school. If it happens again, everybody dies. Oh my gosh. They didn't tell us that. They told us that, that when the, from like 2000, 2001 to 2020, like everybody could go to school. Everyone was happy. Like women wore makeup. I saw a group yeah, of kids skateboarding. Skate- they listened to rock music and then we leave and then it all, wow, that's crazy. Yeah. And like I was, I was pretty, like, pretty remote parts of Afghanistan. Like uh, it might've been a little bit different yeah, in Kabul it. because there were like way more coalition forces and, you know, cities. Yeah. And, and cities Kabul. tend to be more, uh, I think like more liberal leaning in, in that kind of way anyways. But, um, but yeah, that was a pretty, pretty common thing. Like it, the, the they didn't really have a lot of, uh, weren't like many good things going, going for them at, at that point as well. And that kind of happened um, a little bit slowly, but as like the, the Taliban started grabbing power, um, the kind of like a snowball where it was like, okay, like now like we're in control of this, like now we control agriculture. So everybody is going to grow a poppy for us or you're going to die uh, so that they could produce opium. Really? Uh, yeah. And so a lot of farmers were prevented from, from growing like food crops. because. And this was happening in like 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12. Oh yeah. This was happening all over uh we did the surge. What year was the surge? Remember we did a surge there? So 2011 when you were the second I time? I think there it? were a couple surges because I think 2011 was yeah. part of the surge because at that point, like Iraq had pretty much ended. So all the troops that had been there were were kind of moved over. So they were growing poppy to, to make heroin, I guess, right? Correct. In, in two, while we were there. Kaplan, did you know any of this? Really? Yeah, I knew that. I mean, I thought wasn't for poppy bagels, unfortunately. No, but I mean, I... Yeah, that, that, that was go ahead, Cap. Pro- Sorry. No, I was going to say that's one of the reasons they always I would always hear about all this corruption was that they were just turning around and then we would try to... Like, would we like try to burn down a field? But then, you know, it's like a... 
then 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 the Taliban would punish them. You know, like it, there was no way, there was no right way to do this, right? There's no like that's the economy. That's what they make. Yeah, they make their money. I, I'm not going to throw. I mean, I, I guess I'm going to get a little conspiratorial here, but I, I find it pretty damning that uh, like the entire time that we're in Afghanistan, where they're the largest producer of opium probably on the planet. Uh, the United States is having a hell of an opioid crisis. And then in the 80s, when we were in, uh, you know, Central and South America, uh, you know, discreetly, that's when like cocaine becomes a huge thing. Like it's it's not a coincidence that like we're going to all these like drug cash crop places and then seeing those same drugs from that region that should be getting burned, uh, you know, ending up all over the world. And destroying they're, it. they're not making any drugs in North Korea, Kaplan. That's why we're not there. That's <laughs> what. Oh, they're making why we're never gonna That's why we don't go in. Yeah. It was Korean <laughs> is the best. We gotta okay, go ahead, Pete. As you say, North Korea, like they, they fund pretty much all of their all their operations because of sanctions due to crimes. So they have like one of the best hacking teams in the world. They also make incredible amounts of meth because like they're a nation state and they can buy like they can go full Walter White and buy stuff that like ordinary people wouldn't be able to buy. And then they just you know, it's easier to sell meth than. Do it they is. go to the Home Depot and buy all the products too, like Walter White does? I, I think so. It's just a bunch of giant orange buckets. Yeah. Rough. Well, we'll f- if we have an op- if we have a if we go into Afghanistan, if we go into North Korea in two years, and then a year later there's a meth crisis yeah, meth in America, crisis. we'll know why. We got to take a break real quick. Uh, so, Kaplan. Um, and when we get back, I want to get into ghost troops and a bunch of stuff. I want to go deep. Corrupt, yeah, we got to get into the corruption and the follow the money type stuff. But um, more than we even have so far. But Kaplan, we have for $20 a month for our Patreon subscribers, you get one ad a month on this show. A $20 ad. You can't beat that. When we get the real, the big companies, we charge them millions. But for our <laughs> listeners, so we have it's only 20 bucks. And this week we have the great author, Bill William R. Dodson. Excuse me. I know him as Bill Dodson because we're friends and I'm in Hollywood. Yeah. yeah. William to me. So uh, we're chums, but he's William R. Dodson. He has a great book out called uh, Virtually International. He's done multiple. He's an author. He has, this is his third book. I got to interview him for his first book when we were both living in China about, um, about the emerging market of business in China. That was like a decade ago. And now I just did a, I just did a uh, book talk with him about his new book, Virtually International. We did it virtually because that's what it's about. This new world of working with teams. With, if, you're a ma- if you're a manager at a company and you have teams around the world, you have to read this book because Bill's lived around the world. He's lived in Turkey, China, all over the place. He knows a bunch about the different cultures. And he in this book, he walks you through how to successfully work with a team around the world. There's simple stuff, Kaplan. Bill and I talked about this. I remember when we were living out in China and we had we had to work, either one of us with our businesses had to work with Americans. The Americans would always be like, all right, we're doing it at noon. And noon Friday is the meeting, not caring that that is uh, uh, midnight for you on Friday night. And so, you know, I, that's not, you're not going to stop me from partying. So I'd go out to the drunken clam, get hammered, and then come back and do a drunk meeting at midnight but if you really want your team to work better, figure out what time zone they're in, what one you're in. I mean, it's basics that people. And I asked Bill about that, and he said, "Oh, that's a common refrain of people around the world." They said when they work with Americans, the Americans always schedule it on their time, and then everybody else. So if you're in Turkey, you got to get up at 3 a.m. because 
they want to have an 11 a.m. breakfast meeting or something. Um, so there's a million, million tips in there. Plus, he has great stories about working in China with uh, drunk uh, government leaders. And you have to... A lot of drinking stories. It's a lot of drinking stories in Turkey, drinking in India. He has some crazy stories. So go check it. Everybody, Virtually International, we will put the link. If you want to, I was going to say, if you want to run a meth business out of North Korea or anywhere else and you need advice on international. That'll be in the second edition. Do it. <laughs> that's, that's the addendum. You know, like when your teacher makes you buy in college, they make you buy the. When the paperback, <laughs> yeah, there you, you go. You, yeah, a little addendum. Virtually international. That's it, uh, William R. Dodson. And now, Kaplan, a word from our local sponsor. All right, we're back. Thank you very much. Thank you, sponsor. thanks to all the local sponsors. We love you. Uh, we see you. We know who you are, uh, Pete. Quality products and services. They're, they're great. They really are the best. I think it's almost skiing. Well, they always they know we have a wide audience, so they uh, really promote skiing on our show. <laughs> well, there's always ads for skiing, so I'm sure those are coming up. There's a lot of ads for Vermont skiing, which is, is very triggering. To Kaplan, that's for you. These are local sponsors. In Northern California, I've been told they're Tahoe ski ads. And in Colorado, it's Vail and all these places. So, uh, Pete, so speaking of money and how this all worked with the Afghan military, how did, how did it work? Did we... The U.S. give them a budget and then they went out and spent it on their own military? Or how did that flow? Do you know? So I can speak to that a little bit, like, because I was, I was just an infantryman. Yeah, so based I, off of what you know. Um, but my, understand, my understanding of it was basically not so much that they could order, like, what they wanted. It was basically we just gave them a bunch of our stuff. And so we would, uh, a lot of times, like, they would prefer, um, they would actually prefer, like, the, uh, the AK-47s to our M4s. Um, but, like, a lot of the, the trucks and stuff like that, we would give them money for, or for, like, the advanced systems, like, you know, Javelin uh, rocket launchers and things like that. We would just give that to them. So as far as I am aware, there wasn't, like, a lot of, like, requisition and them saying, like, we could really use a bunch of this. It was, here's all this stuff. And you're saying we gave them stuff, as far as you know, as opposed to money, as opposed to a blank check, it would be an actual thing. Well, I think there was also a lot of, um, like, we had like pallets or, like, entire shipping containers full of cash. And Whoa, cash? About that. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of times, like, that would go towards, like, you know, trying to buy crops or trying to, you know, uh, jumpstart local businesses, um, things like that. Uh, sorry about that. My dog's stuck in my my wires because oh no problem we would just like hand a pallet to like a local tribal leader and say like (laughs) divide this up do is we want to give them like the pallet we would just hand them like stacks off of it and say like you get this much stacks of cash oh yeah what there were there were like basically banks on american bases that were just full of cash rooms and things like that. And then uh, some of that would be used, you know. And would they have to return an itemized receipt to us of how they spent the cash? Like billions, if not trillions, just disappeared. Uh, Same in in Iraq. Oh, my gosh. No, I was just saying that I read uh, that an estimate had it as high as a third of all the money that we spent over there just sort of disappeared. Oh, 100%. I don't even know where it went. 100%. Like the accountability stuff, which is... Billions. Uh, just like didn't apply on on a large scale. And who would we, when we would hand out this money, we would hand it out to 
the Afghan president, like actual mil, actual um, government leaders or these tribal town leaders? Uh, little column A, little column B. So like we would have uh, we would have teams like we as as a uh, like forwardly deployed like infantry company, we didn't really have access to the cash. But if uh, like civil affairs came in, they would have access to cash. Uh, like there were people whose whose whole job was to, you know, go to city leaders and say, oh, you need twenty five twenty five thousand dollars to build a well. Cool. Here you go. And then the impetus was supposed to be, you know, that they would go out and hire somebody to to build the well, and it was supposed to, you know, A, help build an infrastructure, B, create jobs and things like that. But a lot of times that $25,000 well, like they would come back and be like, they need 75,000 for it. Um, and so things would just disappear like that. Like we would spend a lot of money trying to uh, incentivize information, uh, which is basically just bribing yeah. um, to say like, you know, who's seen, who's seen who. Um, like, yeah, it's just, and it's all cash, so it's it's really not traceable. Why do all cash? We're, we're um, banking. We're banking. Was the banking system not developed there? It'll take. Yeah, I mean, cash, no. cash is always king. Um, I think. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> but a lot of like there weren't um, like a lot of these areas and stuff like that. Like there were no ATMs. Like there were no. Okay. Like, nobody had debit cards. Like yeah. cash. It was basically cash or barter system. And square. And what cash? It was U.S. dollars. Is Afghan money? Um, so you would see like, a couple different kinds of cash. Like you would see Afghan money a lot, um, but you would also see U.S. dollars. You would see Iranian money sometimes. Uh, we would like if we detained like Taliban guys. Like sometimes they would have like you know thousands of dollars Iranian on them. Really? Which ended up like not being very yeah. much. Like I for a while I had like a fifty thousand. Like I th- like a fifty thousand Iranian dollar bill. I think it was worth like twenty bucks. <laughs> nice. They try, did they try no, to bribe you with that or something on, on somebody? <laughs> and is that because Iran just had a more stable yeah. currency, or were these people working with Iranians? Um, so that's that's where it gets to be like pretty crazy. I think for a bit, like there was certainly, um, especially my first deployment, we were in Kandahar province, but then there was Helmand province, which was like one of the big Taliban strongholds that I believe was like on or very close to the Iranian border. I think it was on the Iranian border. So there would be like some movement between, uh, between that, but then the Taliban also hired a bunch of mercenaries and things like that. Um, and, and it benefited Iran to, to kind of have, you know, things going on in Afghanistan and, and Iraq, because that kind of meant that, you know, the U.S. was preoccupied. Mm. So I feel like there's probably a little bit of collaboration there. But uh, sometimes, um, sometimes like when we were doing like battle damage assessments and we would like, you know, find the bodies of people that had died in firefights, like um, we would find that like instead of that the Taliban was hiring like Chechen mercenaries um, and like outsourcing some mm. of, some of their fighters. And where did they get? I'm sorry, we're, I'm going off a little bit here, but where did they? Where did the Taliban get their funding from? Selling um, opium or selling? Yeah, a lot of it was from selling opium and, and heroin and things like that, but also just the fact that they were like bandit kings. So like they could go like into towns, kind of like the the red scarfs in uh, in Tombstone. They just yeah. sometimes would come into town, like take whatever they wanted, and. And also, I'm pretty it's crazy. I'm pretty sure on a geopolitical level that like countries like Russia or Iran were all but happy to to help fund them against us. Because I, the more I sit and think about it, the more I just feel like Iran or Afghanistan was like more of a proxy war. 
Yeah. Right. Kept us busy. Yeah. Kept us out of there. And what were the ghost ghost troops? Do you know you're familiar with that term? Uh, could you could you explain that real quick? Because I yeah. So this is a thing that's come up very recently in the news in the U.S. That um, there were what I guess the U.S. media is calling ghost troops. You might have called them something else, but it's this idea that they would on paper there were three hundred thousand Afghan troops. Um, and the, the theory is that in actuality, there was closer to 100,000, but that the Afghan military would say there was 300 because then they say we need, fun, we need uniforms for 300,000. We need like whatever guns. And then they could pocket that the 200,000 of those people didn't exist. So they could just pocket that money. But that Biden and all of our leader, all of our presidents throughout uh, as long as this has been going on have been. But specifically, Biden was basing his exit off of this idea of 300,000, or at least the, theoretically. Well, they have 300,000, so that'll last them. They can beat the blah, 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 blah. Yeah. This amount of time, yeah. Do you know uh, anything about that? So a little bit. Like Anything that I'm going to say on that is speculation, but I, I okay. don't 100% believe that because to an extent, we did that as well, um, like the U.S. Army. Like we would... Uh, pretty constantly, like we would have like readiness numbers. And I was like, okay, like a platoon, for example, is supposed to have 28 people, um, you know, four teams of like seven people or um, depending on, on the thing, some, like some squads, would, uh, some squads would be like, nice. it'd be like maybe say 40 people for a platoon. Um, but a lot of times like platoons would deploy and they'd only have 30 people, but um, like the numbers and stuff like that, like we would say, oh, we're, we're ready. Like you needed to hit like this threshold of, you know, people to be able to deploy. And so the word would come from top to, you know, say like a couple of those people that can't deploy because of medical conditions, just say they're deployable. And then they kind of figured we can add people like as they get out of basic training, we can ship them to like the units and stuff like that. But we like fudging the numbers like that is, is definitely done on both sides. And I think, I think that probably, uh, probably happened a lot, especially, because like the other thing with like the Afghan army, um, that I think a lot of people forget, is like they were there the whole time. So it's not like it's not like our army where you know I did two years. Um, mm. Like the people, like the people that like you know I worked with in Afghanistan in two thousand eight, like that one on patrols with like they're probably all dead, and like their sons are now in in the army or like basically like they feel like they don't have a choice and they've been fighting for 20 years and people are uh like if you made it all the way through like you're retiring or the taliban killed you at this point yeah and so i mean yeah they lost like sixty thousand troops right yeah and so it's it becomes really hard to like track like because they also don't have the accountability that that we have kind of kind of like we had in like world war two where like you would see movies where like some guy would like find himself like behind enemy lines and then like come like stumble across like another unit and they're like oh you're just like you're part of this unit now like basically that's a nightmare that would never happen here because they would say like what unit and we could like contact people but like at the time like that, that communication like didn't exist like that identification didn't exist so people could just leave and either assume they were dead or join another unit and a lot of these people um like the afghan army like they wouldn't if you like using the u.s for an example like i'm in new york like i'm based up in new york city 
Uh, you're out of LA, right? No, uh, we're both in New York, no, but I, yeah. I'm in Texas right now. I'm uh, doing shows, but we both live in New York. Okay, on the road. Um, so like, yeah, we're we're in New York. Like, say, exact same thing happened, and giant army came, and like, we had to like start like a national guard here, or whatever. Um, like, typically, we would say, okay, like we're in the New York National Guard now. Like, we're gonna stay here because we know the area. But in Afghanistan, it was so much more dangerous for them to do that. So they would say, like, okay, well, you're gonna go fight in Kansas because. The Taliban in Kansas isn't going to know who you are, and they're not going to like find your families. And that was how we were telling people that we would keep them safe. And that lack of accountability makes things like, you know, ghost troops like that much easier because nobody knows where anybody is. Yeah, the Taliban would want us to be fighting for New York because we were we're pretty useless. (laughs) Well, you and I are, Kevin, not Pete. At least that's what I meant. (laughs) You and I, not him, obviously. (laughs) Especially me. But yeah, I can't even squint. And what? So when you were there, did it feel like? Did the Afghan military people you worked with? Did they feel um, like motivated, committed, well trained on the same level as a U.S. as a U.S. military troop would be? So, I want to say yes and no on that. Like their equipment was like definitely lacking. Like they flat out did not have like the same capabilities that we had. Like, mm-hmm. um, like we, we own the night. Um, so like our night vision goggles and stuff like that, like we, we trained hours to, to be able to like raid villages in complete darkness and stuff like that. Um, and their training, like we worked a lot with them. Um, but it was, it was kind of weird because it, it almost felt like it almost felt like they were basic trainees. Um, where a lot of times like they would have like the commanders and we would like say, okay, like this is how our squad is going to do this. Like this is like the area and everybody's kind of learning everything the first time together. Um, and so like technically they weren't as proficient as us, but like they definitely, there were a lot of them that like really gave a shit. And like some of those guys were maniacs in like the best possible way. Like we would be like in a firefight and some guy would run up with like the Rambo, like 240 Bravo machine gun with like the, like the belt of ammo in his other hand, you just stand on top of a berm and just like empty the thing. Jeez. Just spraying it across like back and yeah, forth. Like, and probably not hitting anything or like, like they, they love to like jump on berms and just shoot rocket launchers. Like they, <laughs> they were nuts with stuff like that. Um, like a lot of them. And like, they did really like, they didn't really give a shit. And I think you had to, to a join the army at all, uh, knowing the risks of not just dying in combat, but your, your family getting hurt and stuff. Yeah. Like that. And so I, I think it's like really unfair for people to say, Oh, they just like laid down their stuff and they didn't care. Like a, like it's been going on for 20 years and B, they risked so much more than we did. Yeah. Cause you, as you said, you guys were gone after a year or whatever it might be. We, you guys were doing the like coaching sort of like telling the, the strategizing and they relied on that. Yeah, support and, too, and right? that was the thing, when we cover them left and we took, uh, took all those security contractors back. Like that just like we we wouldn't have been able like if it was just infantry units, like we would have like we could have fought like fought to the last man. Um but without like our air support and things like that, we would not have the capabilities to to fight the, the Taliban according to our training and according to our expectations. And I think I think it would have gone a lot worse than people think. Like if you just had like isolated um isolated like uh, you know groups of troops like suddenly stuck behind enemy lines 
You mean even if Americans were just fighting the Taliban without air support? Yeah, I mean, like, there's like documentaries yeah, on that. Yeah. Like Restrepo was like a base that got attacked, and it was like a vicious firefight, uh, and they were like surrounded and like pinned down in like the mountains and stuff like that, and it was it was brutal, and like and they still had the ability at some points, like during battles like those, to you know call for air support. Like it might not get there right away, but. Uh, I think you didn't hear very often of entire uh, camps being overrun, but it was because we had so much uh, greater capabilities. Yeah. And when did the air support and all the contractors, when did they leave? Do you know? I believe it started a couple months ago. Um, And that was, that was kind of the thing that. So the final pullout was August 31st. That was like, yeah, I think it started, started going in like April. And wow, and, wow. Uh, and the problem, there were a couple problems with with the pullout. Um, like a, like we never should have told the Taliban. Like we should, never should have given them a time frame. Sure. Like, like that's yeah, just that's, even Trump said because at that point, like best case scenario, they just lay low until like October first. Yeah, they're waiting it out. Yeah, and because then it's like at what point? Like, but. There was also the fact that, like, as we started, like, pulling out, like, we should have, I think we should have been getting families um, of, like, interpreters and all of the people that worked with us start, you know, trickling them out for months. Like, ha- start pulling them out in April instead of, like, having them do a mad dash at the airport. Totally. And, like, leave the leave the bases, uh, like, standing there until until it's time. Like, the problem with the way that they like started pulling people from the outer outer bases and things like that. And I got to see uh, three of the bases that I was on in, it was actually, it was kind of funny, a little funny, like also sad, a little funny. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause there were like three main bases that I was at during my time in Afghanistan. And there was a CNN report and uh, the reporter literally named all three in a row and being like, have all fallen to the Taliban. Ugh. I'm like, son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. What were the bases? Um, so there was Fab Andar, um, there was Fab Ramrod, and then there was also um, uh, there was Miri Hatal, which is now Copperath, and then we were at Fab Four Corners. But like all of those were, um, all of those were um, were taken, and then like basically because like stuff to make it blown up, which I understand. Like you can't blow everything up like that. Yeah, as much as people like think that's. A good idea. Like it basically just meant that now the Taliban had these hardened fighting positions, and so after like probably June, when they now controlled most of the bases, uh, and then we closed down Bagram Airfield uh, to consolidate everything in Kabul to to completely pull out. Like that was when all our air support was gone, and then they just went nuts because June. they knew they couldn't be stopped, and they knew that if we were going to stop them in any meaningful way, besides, you know, bombing bases, um, which probably has a lot of collateral damage. I mean, we'd have to recommit, you know, hundreds of thousands of troops. So this idea that it all fell in two days is just so far off. I mean, first of all, the Taliban was there the whole time. Second of all, it started in June when we gave up all these bases. Yeah. It it probably started before that, honestly. Yeah. Um, but that was, and I think that was like the inevitable thing was, I don't think there's any way that this could have gone differently. The only thing that I can think that should have been different was all of the, uh, the Afghan like refugees and things like that should have been 
the first people to go, like all the interpreters' families and the people, uh, the ANA soldiers, like that, you know, if they fought and they wanted to, to leave the country, like they should, they should have been able to do that, you know? Yes. And, yeah. Um, and things like that. And then we should have been able to, to kind of just, you know, hold off and say, you know, we're going to protect you guys on the way out and then co- kind of collapse inward so that we could just make a, a tidier exit. And I'm sure there's some reasons that didn't happen, but that's how I would have done it. Sure. And when you, um, you know, when, when it all fell so quickly, at least the Afghan military and the Afghan government fell in a few days, Biden had said that, well, his intel, his and his team told him it would take 18 months to fall. Um, is there any, knowing what you know, is there, where would you stand on that? Is there any way you would see them lasting 18 months? I'm going to say no. Um, I, especially because we just, we clipped their wings. Like, yeah. uh, um, like just like, especially like the contractor thing like that, that devastated them. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I don't know how they could have made it 18 months. Like maybe they were going off of like the ghost troop numbers and they thought like 300,000. Yeah. But that's the one theory, time, but, but at the same time, like, and I'm just being a hundred percent honest, like, sure. If, if this happened here, uh, and we were like red dawning it, and then, uh, and then like all of a sudden, like our biggest ally in the area left. Chances are, like, I'm changing my clothes, and I'm getting the fuck out because yeah. my only chance of survival is probably get somewhere and act like I don't know what's happening. Totally, of course. It's like self-preservation at a certain yeah, point, right. right? Especially when your president leaves, you're like, who am I even fighting for then? You know? Yeah. yeah. What are you fighting for? And your ally yeah, will lose. And Why it's die when you? That they didn't even you... want. Like that's. Like that's yeah. the the big thing is it's not like their idea of like a free Afghanistan and the idea that we were trying to sell them. Like we were just trying to get them to buy the car without giving a shit, like what they needed or what they wanted. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, I, I don't think that anything could have, could have changed that um, without, you know, having started over years ago. I think the only only way this could have gone better is if we just if we left after like the Tora Bora caves uh, like fight when we realized Bin Laden wasn't in the country. Right, but yeah, and Afghanistan was considered like the good war for all those years. Ironically, like there's a revisionist history now. I feel like where people are saying we shouldn't have never been there after 9/11. We all knew we had to go in. Right. Yeah, and everybody supported for years. And even Obama, I mentioned the surge because it was like this idea that like this is the war we're supposed to be fighting. This is where Bin Laden was. Let's go and finish the job. And that's how we felt. I mean, that's that's here, how but, I felt like that. Because um, like the yeah. first day of my senior year was 9-11. So I remember like kind of being like, am I going to go to college? Like, what am I going to do? And then like 25 minutes into my first day of my senior year, like that happens. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I'm joining the army. Wow. And, um, and kind of like figuring that out. And then you started seeing like all the stuff about like, you know, how they treat women and children and like all of the awful stuff going on with the Taliban. And I'm like, okay, like this is my chance. Like this is my like fighting the Nazis like Mm -hmm. this. And yeah. And then you get to like the villages and you see these people and like, you really like share like moments of humanity with them. Like, like the parents, like seeing us hand out the the gloves and then like cooperating because, okay, these people, like we just, 
the only thing we give a shit about is keeping our kids alive and safe. And these people seem to be the ones that are helping us do that. Like that happens, but then the fucking Taliban comes in and like they took the gloves from the kids and started using them to make bombs so they didn't leave fingerprints. Oh and God. So it's yeah. like it's this thing where like the Taliban is like unquestionably evil and, and bad. Yeah. But they're just they're too Yeah, they're too green and like they're too like yeah, and it's just like it's too deep and it's too easy for them to like disperse and it and it started like so long ago. Like they 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 consolidated power like slowly and started saying, Okay, like women can't go to school. Um, like you have to grow this. Like it didn't happen overnight. And so you start to see stuff like stuff like that happen. Um and it just it I, I'm honestly like not to get like super political, but I'm like kind of scared of like seeing the same thing start to happen here. And, uh, and that would, I feel be like, in, in what way? So, or what do you mean by that? So I, I, I don't think there's like a secret that like the, um, left and right are more at odds with each other than they've ever been. And sure. So you, so you have like just some of the parallels of seeing like people going and trying to, you know, be more restrictive against women in the name of religion, kind of like the Taliban did with, um, with, uh, you know, their women, but using Islam. And you start to see like all these, all these things like education saying like, Oh, we can't, um, mm. you know, we don't want you to teach history the accurate way or this or that. And it's the same things that we saw happening there. And, wow. and like that, that kind of terrifies me. Um, because it's like at that point, you know, even if we didn't make a, a huge change in Afghanistan, it would feel like a bigger loss to, to kind of see that happen here. And like, I try not to get too political, but like, I just think there's so many, like so many correlations and like right. seeing the patterns and like, that's, that is alarming to me. Wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> I guess. I have a daughter. She's going to school. <laughs> she, to school. She, doesn't, she doesn't like it. She doesn't want to go to school. She wants to be a YouTube probably, star. So <laughs> she would. Yeah. She would rather. She would rather be in Afghanistan where she didn't have to go to school. She's like, I don't to school. There. <laughs> this sounds, sounds great, great to her. Yeah. Oh my gosh! All right. Well, um, thanks, man. Thank you so much. I mean, Sorry, I think I, I heavy episode. No, no, no. I I think Is it's it? just reality. I mean, we're trying to figure out how how this whole thing fell in two days. And I think the big answer is it didn't fall in two days. It was, yeah, I didn't even know. So, so I'm still kind of blown away that the Taliban, even when we were there, 2008, 2009, 2010, whatever, when you were there, that the Taliban had so much control. I, I guess, Kaplan, you said you knew that. I, did, I didn't know that. Well, I knew they had regions. I knew there was, and it's the fact that I didn't realize though that you said that there were regions where they had that. Like where they could control the fields and the poppy fields and everything. Like I knew they would, there'd be bombs every once in a while you'd read about and stuff like that. Well, so I knew they weren't. That's the thing. Of, I don't like, know. The way they fought the insurgency um, was it doesn't take a lot of people. Like it doesn't take much to make a region ungovernable. And like, they don't have to control things and pass the laws. They just have to make sure that the effective government, like, you know, the Afghan government in this case, can't do that. They just then, need like instability and chaos, kind of instability and chaos. And then they can roll in in the middle of the night, you know, post their notes um, 
and then take off. And, you know, whether those threats come to fruition or not, like that power, like there's still that invisible hand saying, like making influence and stuff like that. And then you come back and you deliver on it if, if need be, but it doesn't, it's so much easier to, to be an insurgent than it is to, uh, you know, to be an occupying Mm -hmm. army. Yeah. Right. And that's the, even if we kept a base, you know, or kept nearby, like I was saying with South Korea earlier, it's just we, without having troops there, like on the ground, like you're saying, to enforce things, to keep the, there'd be no hope for it. The Taliban was going to take over, yeah, basically, the, it sounds like. We had no yeah, way of even, stopping that. Even if we were there, like, eventually, we weren't doing a great job of identifying who was who. Like, we tried, um, but it's it's not like they were wearing uniforms. Like, you would sometimes see, like, the black, uh, like, the black head wraps and things like that. But there were also, you know, just normal people in black head wraps. And, yeah. Um, and sometimes, like, they would disguise themselves as women because, like, the burqa provides a lot of, like, really good. Like, if you want to get out in a pinch, throw a burqa on, nobody can see your face. They weren't, they weren't identifying as women, you're saying? They were disguised. They were, they were just disguising. And, um, and there would be a lot, of, a lot of stuff like that. And so it became very difficult. Um, to do that. And then also like they had the internet, they had cell phones, like, um, and, and the travel, like word travels so fast there. It's like insane. Like how fast, uh, like word would travel. Like we would leave one village, go to another village like really fast. And they'd be like, Oh yeah, I heard you like talk to like so-and-so. And it's like, that was 10 minutes ago. Like how, how do you know that? Like, and it was just because like gossip travels like wildfire. And so it's that yeah, you can't, you can't win it with force you can't yeah. win it with might or technology or anything like it it has to be ideological and it has to be agreed on and that's why nobody's ever conventionally going to to ever win it yeah it doesn't work so all right well let's end on this how about your book tell us a little bit about the book heist coming out in october oh yeah awesome thank you um yeah. so yeah my book heist comes out uh it's it's available for pure order now um you can just search like Barnes and Noble, Pete Stegmaier, it's going to be the first uh, first topic. But basically, it's a compendium of a hundred different heists and like cons and scams throughout history. Uh, I dive pretty deep into like how they worked, the people behind them, and it's it was definitely super fun. It's way more of like a like a bedside, like you know, read a story before before bed kind of book. But it's it's super fun. I had a great time. And then you can also check out my podcast, which is kind of like a companion piece where I like dive deeper into each of those stories and, and new ones every week. And what's the podcast called? Uh, the podcast is called I Can Steal That. Nice. I Can Steal That. Uh, cool. Everybody check it out. I love that idea. That's a great idea for the book, by the way. You can make like... It is a great idea. How did you come up with this concept for the book? So I actually, I got approached by a publisher. Uh, they they found my podcast and said like this would be a really good book format like would you write one oh, and so then, uh, and it worked out really well because like a lot of the stuff I already had scripts for for my podcast so it was just you know adapting it to the, the new format and adding like new things and getting to like really have some fun with it. Awesome, cool. All right, the book is Heist coming out in October. The podcast is I Can Steal That. Uh, Pete Stegemeyer, thank you so much for doing the show, man. Of course, this is- thanks for having me illuminating and enlightening kaplan that's it what should we do we need to find some publishers to come <laughs> adapt uh, this podcast book. i think this is a great <laughs> I think it's but in the meantime oh thanks pete there you go you got an endorsement <laughs> i think it's a great format that's going on the back of the book
I think it's a great <laughs> format. You get smart. Get lost. Get lost. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.